Uh, I want to invite you to grab a Bible, if you have one, or you can look at the passage we have printed for you in the materials in the email, as you want to follow along this morning. We're coming to Philippians chapter 2, and this is perhaps the most famous uh, section in this letter, and certainly one of the most beautiful that will be impossible to do justice to this morning. But while you're looking at that and turning there, I want to ask you this question. What's the biggest threat, you would say, uh, that faces the Christian church? Uh, You could answer this, you know, the worldwide church or the American church, the place that God has put us in our context, for most of you at least now. Uh, Is it persecution? Uh, We looked at that last week, and, and we saw that Paul is sitting in prison, in a Roman prison, uh, because he is living out his faith in a Roman context, and Rome doesn't really care what he believes at all. They just want order, and they're enforcing the law. And because of the problems that Paul has stirred up with the Jews in particular, uh, then he landed in prison. But we could say that, um, but it doesn't seem to be the biggest thing that Paul gives his time to, and we've actually seen throughout history when there are periods of persecution that the church actually grows and that suffering actually is something that grows us. Uh, We might say the coronavirus is the biggest threat. Nobody saw that coming, uh, that we wouldn't even be able to worship together. Um, But all of these things, the thing that Paul actually gives his time to is not an external threat, uh, something that's going on outside of him, but it is actually an internal threat. It's the potential for a situation to happen inside the church and inside the believer's lives that he gives the most time to, and we could argue is actually the greatest threat uh, to the Christian church. So what is this threat? Um, And I want to answer that with an illustration this way. I told you last week, you'll see that the title of the sermon is A Life Worthy of the Gospel Part 2. So I hinted that this would also be The Godfather Part 2 as well. And I want to use that as an illustration again and think about it. You know, the movie is famous uh, for uh, people really liking it. Uh, one, because it was a great movie. Men in particular. Um, why, why is that? Uh, why is there just something about this movie that uh, really gets people excited and they really like what they see? And I don't know exactly, but a few things. On the one hand, it depicts some really good things. Uh, it depicts a family life. Um, a life of the characters that are, they spend a lot of time with their families. Uh, they work on behalf of their, of their families. It depicts a family who started with nothing and through a lot of hard work they built up and got everything. And there's a lot of really loyal partnerships uh, that we see, you know, people serving each other and having one another's back. And these are all things that we might say are good and that we aspire to. Yet, of course, there's a twist and that it's not all good, and that it depicts that with those things, that with just a little bending of the rules of life and society and even morality, that life can be turned into not just something good, but it can be added onto, and it can become better. And of course, in The Godfather, then these are things like corruption and revenge, illegal substances, and of course, murder. And the results are, as we see a family that is incredibly rich, they wear nice clothes, they go to cocktail parties, they have absolute power over their enemies, and we think, how nice would life be if anyone who opposed you, anyone who embarrassed you, um, that you were able to just snap your fingers 
and that you would have absolute suppression of any of your opponents and to have these kind of riches and power like that sounds really good right but we also might say if we're dealing with murder and corruption then we're off the hook right this is not something that applies to us Uh, however with us it is not necessarily improving on the riches of our lives but the threat that we have is that we would actually do the same thing with the gospel that we would take the good thing that we are given and think that if we can just improve on it a little bit, our lives will be better. If we can just have the gospel, be received by grace alone, and live a certain kind of lifestyle in a worldly sense, um, in the right neighborhood, the right group of people, then life is going to be really good. If we can just have the gospel and be a standout and impressive kind of person with our gifts noticed and loved, then life is going to be really, really good. If people would notice how in tune we are with issues of justice, how well read we are, how careful of a thinker, and have the gospel, that's where the money would be, and we actually can live the good life that we think we want. It's the gospel and something else. And when we think about that, this includes us all, that the biggest threat to the church is not something that is outside, but that we would actually try to improve on the gospel. And not necessarily with God himself, but with each other. That we would create lines between each other to try to stand out, to try to have horizontal or social security. And not the kind of social security that you would get from the government, but the kind that we would get with each other, where we get honor and value from each other. This is the threat that Paul is going to turn our attention to and he's going to address. So with that being said, um, let me read the passage. And then there's just two, uh, I think, will be quick and obvious points that we're going to see from this passage. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How Paul describes uh, this situation the same way I'm going to, he creates a really simpler, simple don't do this, but do this formula to make a contrast to help us better understand. So I'm going to do this and just describe two types of people that are here. There's the one type of people who grasp and get nothing. And then there's the other type of people characterized by Christ, that those who give up and are given everything. So we're going to kind of compare those to each other. So let's first look at those who grasp and get nothing. If you look in verse 3 through 4, look at these things that this group, how they are described. Paul says they're rivalrous, they're conceited, they think of themselves as more important than other people, 
and primarily they look out for their own interests. And when we just look at that, we think, man, those are despicable, pompous, jerk faces kind of people. Like, we got to get them out of here. Like, you might even have somebody in your mind that comes up that would fit this description. But I want to ask you, think about the last time that you made a disparaging comment about someone else when they weren't listening, or the last time that you felt threatened by somebody, or there's just this type of person you feel threatened by when they just start talking, or the kind of person you would be embarrassed to be like, either to look like or to live, live like. You can think about the last time you felt depressed because you felt overlooked or you weren't giving the kind of honor that you think you deserve or the last time that you were focused on your own interests and someone interrupted you and you snapped at them because your own interests were more important in that moment. And it does not take much for us to think about this and see that this is not just some despicable kind of people who are out there that we have to get rid of. It's actually us. That this is every single one of us. That because of our own fears and insecurities, what it creates are these rivalries. And it's a desire to both have the gospel and yet to have a kind of social peace, to stand out, to get what we're due, to have this kind of social security. This is something that touches every single one of us. But is that such a bad thing? Like, we all struggle with this, we know, and I know it isn't good, but it's not that bad, like, right? Like, surely this is one of the minor things that we could, that we could struggle with. And if we look at these words, first Paul describes it as this kind of, when he uses the word conceit, this is like an empty boast. This is somebody who thinks they're great at someone when, something when everyone else knows they're not. It makes me think of, if you've seen the old British show, Keeping Up Appearances, Hyacinth, who actually lives uh, a fairly modest lifestyle, but is always trying to impress people and show that she has the right kind of decorum and manners and stuff. And it's a comedy. And so this is the kind of um, thing that we're talking about here. He also says, he goes on, that this makes the gospel itself ineffective. Uh, that Paul says later in 2.16 that if this happens, that he would be laboring in vain. And here, that if this happens, there is no testimony. Um, we looked at this in the section last week. Uh, there is no sign that there is any kind of power working in this community um, that is not available to anyone else. This is just a normal uh, group of people with normal rivalries. And it's also fragile. If you look back in verses 27 and 28, when opposition comes, if this is the thing that, that characterizes this community or any kind of hardship, whether that be persecution or circumstances, maybe like the ones we're in, that it cannot stand. This community, it cannot stand if it's a community that is divided in and of itself. And more than that, if, if this is about the gospel, that this confuses the work that Jesus is about and it confuses the work that he has given for us if we always have to improve upon it in order to feel like we have a good life. I had somebody recently, I was uh, another pastor, I sat down with them and was, and was telling them just how hard it can be in ministry and the desire for approval, uh, wanting to work and always receive positive affirmation. And I was saying this in the way, expecting to get back, um, you know, this, oh yeah, we all struggle with that, um, you know, and kind of be comforting in that. But he looked at me right in the eyes and he said, if approval is the thing that is motivating you, you will not only tear yourself down, but you'll bring every single person down with you. 
that these are things that actually divides the community apart, and it confuses the gospel, how we got here and what we are all about. And what is it? This is something for us to think about. What is it that somebody would need to ask you um, when you think about your own life? What is your main motivating factor and how harmful that could be? So that's the one side. This is those who grasp and get nothing. Uh, That trying to approve upon the gospel actually has the reverse effect of emptying it of its true power. So what's on the other side? The, the, what he compares is this type of person that are characterized by Christ, those who give up and are given everything. If you'll look here in verse 6, then Paul is describing this work of Jesus, and it's like he gets so worked up in praise of what Christ did, you can just feel it in the language. But we'll go here in, in verse at a time. Look at verse 6. He says that, oh Christ, that though Christ was in the form of God, and this word form this is important that there's no easy English equivalent. This is not just that he looked like God, but that he had everything essential to what God was. It's a way of saying that he is um, essentially God himself. And he goes on and he says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that this is he is equal with God. So who is Christ here in his person? That he is actually God himself. He sits in heaven above. He has deserved more glory and honor than you and I could ever dream of. And if you remember the readings we had earlier on, the call to worship and the reading, that there is no God but God. There is no glory due but Him. This is Jesus. This is Jesus' identity. But with that, what did He do? And here, here again in verse 6, He doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Like us, It's giving us this picture that His equality with God is not something that He is using or leveraging for his own purposes. It's not something that he feels like he has to take advantage of or to hold on to. Instead of that, he made himself nothing. Your, transition, your translation might say he emptied himself. And again, this is not a casting off of his godhood, but it's something much more radical. Paul is trying to say that he, while still being God, while still being the person deserving this much honor, that he became a servant, like a slave, a bondservant, while still being king. So this is not the situation that's like Christ was the CEO in the tallest room in the tallest tower who then got sent down to the mailroom and had to work his way all the way back up. It's like he was still that. He was still all of those things and yet went down of his own accord out of obedience to his father. And this is, he was not even overcome by this. He chose to do this and yet became a servant. He gave everything for others, and even to the point of death, and even death on a cross, which now the symbol of a cross, it really means something because of the Christian tradition. But then this was scandalous. This was the way nobody wanted to die. And yet Christians were wearing it around. This is like if we walked around with a necklace with an electric chair like on it. It's like that shocking and that radical that he embraced the lowest form of shame that he could. And that's very dramatic, what Christ did. But I want to ask us to think about how did he do this? How was Christ able to do this, to give himself up, to give up that kind of honor that he was due, and yet to serve in such a lowly way? And the answer is trust. He had to trust that his father, the one who asked him to do this, would at the end of the day, even when things were at their hardest and most dire, 
that he would do right by his son Jesus, that he would give him the honor due. What Christ did was he put his honor in the hands of his father and he entrusted it to him and said, do with this what you will out of trust. And what did God do? It said, through this humility, he raised him up and gave him a name that is above every name um, to the glory of God and the Father, something that could only be described by poetic language. Honor that came through humility. And I want to ask is, how does this help us? And you can think about very concrete situations right now, that when you're at odds with your spouse because of the pressure of being together in quarantine, or your kids, where your own interests seem so threatened and you are so unfulfilled, or when you feel threatened by somebody else, or when you feel like your honor is unrecognized, or you're asked to do something that is out of service for somebody else that nobody's going to know, and that you get no good out of it is only good for them. How does this help in this situation? And there are a few things here. One, on the one hand, it gives us a pattern of something better. It shows us what the true gospel actually is, and this is Jesus working through not glory but suffering and humility, that this is the way that God has chosen in order to carry his gospel forward, and that this is actually um, a tool that he uses. It's a good thing. It's not something to to disparage. It shows us where true honor is in the example of Christ. It shows us the true bond of community, of how a community can actually stand together, unshakable. Um, And it shows us what the true witness is, uh, the gospel and the honor that is given from God um, and not grasped or taken from ourselves out of competition. That's one thing it does. But another thing it does is it all comes down to trust for us. And that when the thing is the hardest, when we feel most threatened and the most sense of rivalry with somebody else, that we feel like we cannot bear, then we are posed with the same question. What is God going to do with us? Can we actually put our honor in his hands? And is is he going to do right by us? And what we have here is a story, a true story about a God who did this, who gave himself up for our sake when he didn't have to and for his enemies. And if there is anybody that we can trust, it is this God. But even here, there's one more thing which I think we need to think about. And we have to think about the pattern of this and take that seriously. And we have to think about this invitation to trust God and what he's asking us to do. But I asked Laura, my wife, when I was posing these things too, I think she very clearly articulated, that all sounds good, but what happens when God puts you in a situation that requires more humility than your heart can actually bear? What do we do then? And I think the answer is this. We are given this beautiful section of poetic language, this just spew of glory and praise for Christ as not something for us to replicate. We are never called to do what Jesus did. We are called to be molded by his pattern and to follow him in what he did. But Jesus made himself humble and served us in a way that we could not do on our own. And that means that wherever you are, whatever the situation that God has put you in, whatever you're facing, however impossible that might seem, 
that this God, who was this glorious and gave up this much, is with you. He has given himself to you. He has clothed you. And because he is with you, there is a power that is working inside of you that you and I don't even fully understand. We just have the promise of this and these pictures we are given in Scripture. So Christ not only gives us a pattern for this kind of humility life of prizing the gospel alone with nothing else, he not only gives us a reason to trust him, but because Jesus did this for us, he gives us a reason we can hope. Whatever we are facing, we have hope because this Jesus is with us and he is devoted to us and he will see us through at the end. So we are invited to engage whatever situation we are looking at, starting with him in awe of him and praise of him and his worthiness because of his humility and hope in that. Let's pray that the Spirit would help us in that endeavor. Father, again, you have given us something glorious. You have given us something that is more than we can understand and certainly something we cannot do on our own. Have mercy on us in our pride. Give us humility that we would be molded like Jesus. But work in us, Jesus on our behalf, that we would take comfort in them, in him, and we would indeed be able to hope. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.